So please find a way to sit that's comfortable for yourself. This evening, I'll be speaking for a while and then be joined by two good friends here um, talking about one of the great and most highly regarded meditation masters of the Buddhist tradition of Southeast Asia, Buddhadasa, who died last week and was a teacher for me and a number of others of us who practiced in the monasteries of Asia. So the other two uh, friends who will be speaking for a bit. Um, one is Guy Armstrong, who's here next to me, who was a monk in Thailand for some years and was one of the early managers and developers of the Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast and been practicing for nearly 20 years, practiced in Asia as well, and then became a Dharma teacher and, and uh, was in residence in England at the Gaia House community established that was established by Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman taught there for a couple years or more, now lives in Woodacre. Um, and also Andrew Getz, who is a good friend and lives in Fairfax, who was a monk for four years, much of that time with, uh, as a monk at Buddhadasa's monastery, is that right? Um, and he returned just uh, two, or three years, two or three years ago, now works as a nurse doing some of the kinds of healing work that John Kabat-Zinn does with rehabilitation. Um, and so both of them are also going to add their stories and voices. So this evening I'd like to talk about this teacher named Buddha Dasa. Das or Dasa means servant of. So Ram Das is the servant of Ram, and Buddha Dasa took the name servant of the Buddha. And he's almost was almost the last of this whole generation of great teachers. Um, that have been dying over these last 10 or 15 years, many of whom I wrote about in the book Living Buddhist Masters that was published about 15 years ago. Now it probably should be entitled Recently Dead Buddhist Masters <laughs> to be more accurate. <laughs> and just as in Japan, where they have certain people who are the kind of embodiment of tradition uh, granted the title of national living treasure. Uh, Buddha Dasa would have been one of the national living treasures of Thailand. Um, although this wasn't always so. He said many, many unpopular things, a number of which I will repeat to you this evening. Um, <laughs> And only over many years did he become seen as one of the great figures of Buddhism for his clarity and truthfulness and an enormous kind of and generous integrity that he just spoke things as he saw them and a tremendous goodwill. And as I began to think about him and make some notes for tonight, I realize that it will be a somewhat more traditional Dharma talk than I'm used to giving, which just gives me a sense, if he's sort of at the liberal end of the spectrum in Asia, how far out on the limb I've gone in these recent years. <laughs> but I practiced and studied with him and with good friend Christopher Titmus in, I don't know, 1970, 69, 71, somewhere in that area. Buddha Dasa ordained as a monk in 1920s, and went to live in Bangkok, and after a few years he left, quoting a great dislike for the shamelessness of many of the monks that he met, and a dislike for the city and the values of people living in the city. Buddhism, if you go to Asia, you discover, is like any large-scale religion anywhere, which is to say, there are many churches, but few who follow the way of the teachings. You may have noticed that in this country. It's pretty much the same. Um, and uh, he said he encountered practitioners who followed the way of the world rather than the way of the Dharma. And in the popular religion, there was more focus on ceremonies and fairs and drunkenness and gold statues and merit for other lives and Dharma as a social event. And not much commitment to the refinement of the heart, he said, I didn't see people really changing their lives 
or looking into the forces that cause suffering of greed or hatred or fear or delusion. Instead, they just followed along what was the popular teachings of the day. You can imagine how his preaching on that affected most people. But he had some vision of a real monastery of practice, and he went way down south on the Malay Peninsula, near where he was born, to a great ancient forest that was offered to him, and established a monastery he named Suanmok, or the Garden of Liberation. These huge old teak trees and various great, you know, old growth trees. And he made a little bit of a little bit of a hut with a straw roof and wooden sides, way deep in the forest, and lived there alone for several years with the snakes, the cobras, and the vipers. In fact, when you live there, you have to go out at night. You generally bring a stick to tap the walk along with you so the snakes feel you coming and they slither out of the way. Were they there? And wild boars and tigers and monkeys and things like that. And he's sort of a great big bear of a man, and the kids used to call him the mad monk, he said, coming out of the forest. And he said, I just went there to study nature and study the nature of my own mind. This was his commitment. So he'd go out in the forest at night in the dark and just see what it was like so that he could tackle his own fear and understand it. He said, I almost wish that I'd be chased by a tiger or bitten by a snake or or else some ghost or demon would come and challenge me just so I could find out about fear really what it's like. And as the monastery grew, he established some unusual founding principles, that is, for Asia of the time. The first was that he forbid all the conventional merit-making ceremonies of people coming and making offerings and trying to get good karma for some future life. He said, forget that, we don't even want that here. He forbid all Buddha statues, most Thai and Burmese. These monasteries are filled with these big golden Buddha statues like this one back here, only much bigger and shinier, some with neon lights around them and stuff. It's true. He said, we don't want those. There weren't Buddha statues for, for some hundreds of years after the Buddha, until the Greeks came to India with the beautiful Greek sculptures. And then the first Buddha statues look like Greeks, actually. They do. But he went back to the most ancient stone images from the caves of Ajanta, which were simply an image of a lotus opening in the sea of the swamp, you know, or the image of a wheel of the law, or an image of a beautiful tree with deer underneath it, and that was the image of awakening. And he said, I don't want a big temple where the monks are in the gilded roof and stuff. Instead, let's move some stones in a circle under the great trees of the forest, and that's where we will meet as monks. And he didn't like people to come and bow to him. He'd much rather if you come and sit down next to him. He called himself a Kalyanamitta, a spiritual friend, not some great teacher, but a friend with whom, when you sat, you could discuss the Dharma in an open way and to speak about the truth. He would question new monks or visitors, why did you come here? What does your heart really want? good question when you come to a spiritual center. The last visit I saw him a couple years ago, there are all these tour buses that would pull up, and he said, it's so sad. They think this is some kind of Buddhist amusement park. He said, I think half of them stop here just because they have to use the bathroom, you know. Or there'd be Mercedes pulling up with these rich generals and, and politicians and industrialists making special offerings, and they'd do that, and he'd look at them and he'd say, you know, that way you gave me, it's worth nothing. We don't even want it here. And their jaws would drop because, you know, they'd come and bow to this great teacher, and he'd say, we don't even want your, stu- your junk. So the only thing we, we value here is how a person lives their life. How are you living your life? From the very beginning, at the founding of Suanmok Monastery, he said the purpose of practice, of a spiritual center, of a spiritual life, is to attain nirvana, which is defined in the Buddhist tradition. Nirvana sometimes means coolness. It's mostly defined as freedom from bondage, freedom from torment 
freedom from constraint. It's also called the unconditioned. When we step outside of our conditioned reactions of liking and disliking, of grasping and fear and aversion, and rest in a place that is unafraid of all of the things of the world. Openness. Peace of heart is another meaning for nirvana. It's translated, sometimes the Buddha called it the supreme happiness. And Buddha Dasa even made fun of the Buddha at one point. He said, well, that's sort of a cheap description of nirvana because everybody's infatuated with happiness. It's not really happiness in the normal sense, but rather that well-being that comes when we rest just here with things as they are. And so in his teachings, he stressed this kind of happiness and the soil from which the happiness of nirvana, of non-reaction, of peaceful heart grows from. The soil first of simplicity. He would ask the question, does complexity make happiness in your life? I mean, take a look at it, you know, your facts, your call waiting, your whatever it happens to be. I mean, pay attention. <laughs> Living simply, you know. And he pointed out again and again the folly of consumerism as a religion or materialism, especially as Thailand was developing. And Bangkok has gotten sort of the Los Angeles of, of Southeast Asia now. Incredible traffic jams. You can wait in a sweltering hot day in traffic for a couple hours trying to get somewhere that used to be 15-minute drive when I was first in Thailand. In fact, I have an acquaintance who bought, an, who bought an RV, right, and got a driver and put a cellular phone in it and an office in there so that when he went to his office in Bangkok for the two hours on the way to the office and the two hours on the way back, instead of sitting in his car, he could be at the office in traffic while it was sitting there and make his calls from his desk. That's how bad it's gotten. But people didn't like what Buddha Dasa said. They called him a heretic and a communist. He was against developing. A communist in the 60s during the Vietnam War and the 50s when it was really a very serious accusation. Um, and he didn't care. He said, you know, you're not going in the direction of the Dharma. You can be free. You can release yourself from the body of fear what it asks is that you give up your attachments, your clinging. He would say there's nothing to be and nothing to have and nothing to do. Rather, his teachings were more about letting go. Each time you leave something, that may be the last time. It's like my wife who makes a practice every time I leave or my daughter leaves home or she goes, she says goodbye as if it were the last time because one doesn't know. And his teaching, Buddha Dasa's teaching, which was very unpopular, he used to recite this phrase in Sanskrit or Pali, Sabe Dhamma Nala Abhini Vinisaya, which means the whole teaching of the Buddha, nothing whatsoever should be grasped or clung to. Not your body. You can care for it, but you don't own it. Your career, your lover, your spouse, your children. The amazing truth is that we will die and our personality and all our works and all the things that we take as being so significant, gone in a moment. And it will happen to you. It's the only thing you don't know is when. But it's a certainty. So rather to act without attachment, because death is stalking us. Death is there. Everything becomes a mystery to us. We lose all of this. And so his teaching was that of letting go now rather than holding on. A simplicity, finding simplicity in your life. What are you collecting things for? Another fundamental basis of his teaching was what might be called natural presence. And he taught Vipassana by the nature method, he called it. No fancy techniques. Really, presence of being, fullness, presence of heart. 
He said, when you become present, you can see clearly the nature of things, that they change, that they're not in your control, that they can't be possessed. I mean, try to change yourself. Is it easy? Remember what Gandhi said, I have three enemies. My favorite, the most easily changed for the better, is the entire British Empire. (laughs) My second enemy, which is far more difficult, is the Indian people. If you've ever been to India, you would understand that. But my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. (laughs) So Buddha Dasa said, take a look and see. You don't possess your children. You you don't even possess your body. You can care for it, but it it does it. It ages. Say, don't get old. See if it listens to you. You know? You don't possess your thoughts much. Try and sit and meditate. Tell yourself not to think. See what happens. Does it listen? Your mind? How about your feelings? I won't have these ones. I don't like those feelings. I only have those feelings. They come as the breath does. It breathes itself. So his way of practice, the natural presence, was to pay attention, to be present for what is. He said to a friend, don't practice in ways that take you out of your body or out of your heart. Just be here. And he was kind of against all these fancy meditation retreats and special kinds of, you know, concentration and lights and visions and all these things that people have gotten into over the centuries in Buddhist meditation. He said, if you study the old texts and stuff, the Buddha didn't lead meditation retreats. He said, come and live out in the forest. And live simply, let go of things, be at peace in your being. Otherwise, he said, you just get caught up in, in new states. You get having this inner, interesting vision or some wonderful bliss or something that comes. He said, that's not much better than the new car, really. So the natural presence, which he called the delight of nature. When I was there a couple of years ago, I asked him, What do you recommend for teaching Westerners who have, when they come to practice, so many of us, wounds and unfinished business and pain and conflict from the past that are very deep, kind of healing that's necessary? And he said, yes, I've seen this too. And there are two things, I think, that help. The first is that all of the spiritual practice must be grounded in, established in the ground of, enveloped in a spirit of loving-kindness, particularly a kindness or a mercy toward oneself. You have to do it over and over again. If there isn't mercy and kindness for oneself, there's not much hope of healing oneself or one's relation to the world. There's not much hope of peace. So that's the first, to envelop oneself in a sense of fundamental compassion for our sorrows and our life. And then the second, he said, is especially for those who are wounded. Take them out into nature, to the mountains, to the forests, to the oceans, until their hearts become peaceful, until they realize that they are a son or a daughter of this earth, like every other creature, until they feel some of the harmony of nature. Sometimes I think the best thing that's here in this beautiful place at Spirit Rock is the land itself. I like to come and walk. You know, there's a huge, wonderful, old grandfather oak tree in this. If you go up this first valley from here in, it's wonderful to talk to. I invite you to go converse with him. Um, And my wife was out here the other morning really early. She likes to walk really early before anyone comes out to disturb the animals and saw a bobcat. You might come and visit the fox that walks across the parking lot sometimes or the coyotes that howl here at night. There's wonderful things. And a lot of the healing in spiritual life can come simply by putting ourselves back in in the kind of presence of nature the presence of heart and nature. So when Buddha Dasa was asked, what does the Dharma offer? Or what do you offer here? People would come. He would say joy. Refreshment was a word he liked to use. 
dharma refreshment, rest, ease, a heart that is undisturbed. He said, if you look, even wanting goodness, even political correctness is disturbing. And what we offer is to step outside of good and bad and praise and blame, to find a timeless freedom, a real peace of heart. It's like Thoreau wrote, remember, he said, some men go fishing all their lives without realizing that it's not fish that they're after. What we offer here is refreshment of the spirit, ease, to breathe, to let your heart be at peace, to find a kindness for yourself. There's an old monk who lives in the middle of his forest who's an artist, a sculptor, and he makes all these sculptures that are like the ancient Buddhist ones of lotuses and trees and deer that I described. And his specialty is having school children come and introducing them to the trees and having them model clay into trees. He's a beautiful, like an old Taoist monk kind of. The last time I saw him a couple of years ago, he was out sweeping the paths. And I said, oh, can I sweep for you? He said, no, 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 no. I love to sweep the forest. He wouldn't give me the room. I mean, I wanted to, too. He said, no, no. He was attached. (laughs) But so was I, right? So what does he offer? Joy, refreshment. Just coming to a place where you can come back to yourself and not try to be anybody else. And the last thing that he stressed for people was that in spiritual life we need to see for ourselves. Hearsay doesn't liberate anybody. Our only path to freedom or awakening is the opening of our own eyes, the opening of our own heart. And so he stressed a quality of inquiry or truthfulness. He wanted each person to look and see what is this life for ourselves. Not to take on some new belief system and become a Buddhist or Hindu or whatever it happens to be, or not do it kind of for, I don't know, palliative care, anesthesia, sort of spiritual placebo. Have a nice day, sit quietly for a little bit, and then kind of go on with business as usual, which is a false security. But to live in that truth that we know when we look, when we listen, when we awaken. So Thai popular Buddhism, Burmese, all through Southeast Asia, is filled with all these stories of getting, making good karma so that you'll have wonderful rebirths in future lives. It didn't seem right to him at all. And he sat down and read through every single word the Buddha had, uh, that was written down, the Buddha spoken. 80 volumes, all in Pali or Sanskrit, studied them all, and then wrote this thousand-page book, which he asked me to translate one time that I turned down. But this thousand-page book taking every quote that the Buddha used to describe the cycle of birth and death and showing how it all could be discovered just now in this moment, and nothing to do with past and future lives. He said he would, if it were up to him, he would burn or throw away a third or a half of all the Buddhist texts. He said there are later stuff that people added, you know, popular Hinduism and later Indian philosophy and the Abhidharma, all this Buddhist psychology. He said, it's not that. I said, well, for you, what is the teachings of the Buddha? How can you tell what is there that you call genuine if it's not past and future lives and all that stuff. He said, the word of the Buddha has the taste, the scent, the ring of spaciousness, of selflessness, of emptiness, of peacefulness. It doesn't construct any other belief. It feels like when you see a bird move through the sky or a fish move through the sea in the water. When you, when you hear the genuine words of the Buddha, It's like they open space and create this sense of freedom. Remember last week we talked about and did meditation on space, on sensing the spaciousness in our mind, our heart, our bodies, that emptiness, the pregnant emptiness out of which each moment arises that holds all things. The ease of resting in space. He would ask people to inquire into this. Do you want to rest in your life or struggle? 
which would you choose? Do you want your heart to be clear and open? What keeps you from a peaceful heart? What keeps you from a compassionate or a kind heart? Especially toward yourself. Those are the kind of questions he would ask. He called Dharma a basic public health measure for people. <laughs> it's fundamental public health. And for those who genuinely seek a peace of heart or peace of mind, what the Buddha called nirvana, the coolness, the spaciousness, Buddha Dasa would say over and over again, it's not far away, it's not in some remote temple or some foreign land or some special retreat. Just as the Buddha ate and walked and spoke and taught and breathed in a state of nirvana or peacefulness, anyone can. It's here for the asking, if you will, when we let go. And we can see this too each time as we work to understand this art of graciousness, of letting go, or touching with kindness or compassion rather than being entangled in. Touching with kindness and space, our anger, our fear, our grasping, our craving, our conflict. Not to get lost in it, not to condemn it or judge it, just to sense that and make a space much bigger than that. Each time we sit, we learn to do that. And we see it and have a sense of just making space. He would call that a moment of nirvana. This he also called sampling the wares. He said, you might as well come to the marketplace and try it, just for a moment. You're entangled in this, you should be that way, this should be that way. And then you just let go, you say, let this be the way it is, let me just rest with it as it is. Why not sample the wares, he said, it's good stuff. He and the Buddha both said, if if a single person practices rightly, this earth will not be free of awakened beings. If a single person practices in this way, we will not have an earth devoid of those enlightened or awakened. And to give you a sense of his truthfulness and why he was controversial and great since he died recently, I want to read a passage that he wrote. This is a book that will be coming out this winter um, or that he spoke in a Dharma talk about death. And he was really ready for death. He died at age 87, and he talked about it. It's like this friend, Julie Wester, who teaches here, who's a hospice nurse. She said, when I first started to do hospice work, I learned after a little while that in hospice work, there are no more emergencies. That emergencies come because you think something should be some other way. But when facing death in hospice work, there's no such thing as an emergency. There's no one you have to call and nothing you have to do. Can you understand that? You just have a direct relationship with what is so. So Buddha Dasa goes, he says, now I'd like to talk about the way that the sick and the diseased should prepare themselves for death in a way following the Dharma. If one knows that one's death is inevitable or close, such as the suffering of a terminal disease like cancer, one should make the best of one's mindfulness, free of encumbrance of fear. The Buddha offers us a path to the deathless. We should find that in approaching death. I once came across an account of the way people in the Buddha's time prepared for death. Those who regularly kept the full moon precepts. For them, fasting was not difficult. On the full moon days and the new moon days in Asia, people will come to the temple and they'll eat one simple meal in the morning and then fast the rest of the day and sit up all night in meditation. So their people were used to that, those who really practiced in their lives regularly. So when their illness reached the point at which they felt they had no more than 10 days left to live, they would simply stop eating. Not like us. These days, if someone is close to death, we go out and look for the most expensive and delicious foods so that some people even die from the food that's brought to them. (laughs) Back then, the effort 
was to minimize food for the purpose of having a completely undisturbed mind. When the body starts to run down, it loses its ability to digest, to digest food, and anything consumed turns to poison, which makes the mind more restless and confused. So they prepared themselves for death by abstaining from food and taking only water and medicine. And as death came nearer, they would stop taking even water or medicine in order to focus their mindfulness and quiet their heart so as to die in the way of remainderless quenching of a true freedom or letting go. Inwardly, people who cling to goodness and virtue as their practice might prepare themselves for death by clinging to goodness and virtue. But the wisest prepare themselves to let go and truly release their life. There's nothing they want. Injecting drugs to extend their lives would be a great irritation. Relinquishing the body while still alive, they prepare to make the best of its disintegration as the mind leans them toward nirvana. Those who live in these modern times mill and mob around the doctor in a tumult, sometimes until the room is packed tight, trying to give the dying person more medicine, more food, more injections. We try to do so many things that the poor sick person becomes anxious and flustered and has no peace of mind. They don't know they're going to die or whether in fact they'll die at all. People won't tell them the truth. If you go into a modern hospital, there's nothing but doubt and anxiety for many of them. The sick person does not experience a freedom in the face of death, doesn't realize openness or nirvana. Instead, people today usually look for the most comfortable bed, the most comfortable room, the most expensive medicines, and then die with a great fuss. We want to go on living to put off death as long as possible, even if it's only for a single minute. We demand all sorts of injections and treatments, thus dying without mindfulness and peace of heart. Such activity is deluded, my friends. To die in a true way, we must have a certain daring to follow the Dharma and die and enter that which is deathless. To die, as we have described, is to realize freedom, nirvana, in the last second of life. Please take care to remember that we all have a chance right up to the last moment, if you've forgotten before now. If we are unable to conquer death now, in the final moment, we can still be free. And then he said, when I die, I don't want a big fancy funeral like Ajahn Chah had with million, a million people and the king and queen and the, everybody coming and all this, you know, incredible rigmarole. He said, I'd like you to just take my body out to the forest, to one of the stones in the middle of the forest and leave it there for the animals, he said, and not make such a fuss. And let everybody see that it comes out of the earth and the sky and the sun and all of the nature, the elements of nature, and it's the, that to which we return. The last time I saw him, he was 85 or 86, and his mind was as light as a cloud and spacious as the sky, wonderful presence. And so for him I read a few words from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which he would appreciate because he loved all spiritual traditions and didn't care a whit for Buddha as opposed to some other great teacher. Remember the clear light, the pure clear light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns. The original nature of your own mind, the natural state of the universe, unmanifest. Let go into the clear light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature, it is home. Remember these teachings, remember the clear light. When you can look into all the visions that may arise and recognize that they are only composed of the same clear light as everything else in the universe, they arise as if within a mirror you will be liberated. No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light.
So wherever you are, Buddha Dasa, thank you. First of all, I'd like to uh, thank you all so much for being here. I really feel a lot of appreciation that there are so many people here um, remembering Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu and <clears throat> and his life and his his teachings because having gone uh, to Sunmog um, the first time in 1985, I know from experience that it was it would has been very easy to miss these teachings and to miss truly meeting Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And so I'm really glad that everyone is having the opportunity to hear something about um, this wonderful teacher and kind of a spiritual genius in a way. I remember when I first arrived at uh, Suan Mok, like many of you probably have, you know, with backpack on my back and getting off of the bus, the Great South, uh, the Great uh, South Asian Highway, running right past the front of the monastery. Um, you would wonder, how could anything so accessible and easy to get to be worthwhile? And you'd walk in and there'd be this uh, quiet old man sitting on a bench in front of his kuti or cottage, staring off into space. Hundreds of people walking by and bowing and prostrating, and he was just sitting there, sta staring off into space, occasionally calmly and quietly speaking to someone. And there were these, there were always these uh, cocks and crows that seemed to love to circulate around him. And he, he looked kind of like an old, uh, he looked kind of like a Buddhist version of Santa Claus sitting there. He had his robes thrown over his shoulders and... Uh, and there was always this uh, tremendous clutter around his kuti. There were tons of manuscripts piled up. There were old monks' bowls. There were just all kinds of paraphernalia everywhere. And um, somehow behind all of this was Ajahn Buddhadasa, or Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, as he preferred to be called. And so it was very easy to miss him and <clears throat> to miss what he had to offer. And uh, many times um, in those years, uh, from then until I came back and stayed for a while um, as a monk, um, I did catch a glimmer of these teachings, and then I would return and realize that I hadn't understood anything at all. And I remember when I first came, I was into intensive meditation, and I thought, look at all these people sitting in the forest, they all look so relaxed, and they're all having such a good time, this can't be what the Dharma is all about. <laughs> and uh, it took me a while to kind of realize the wisdom of what was going on there. <clears throat> One of the things that I really appreciated about having the opportunity to be uh, in the presence of Buddhadasa Bhikkhu was this quality of joy and simplicity that he took in practicing and being and expressing the Dharma. It seemed like there was nothing in the world that he loved to do more than that, and, couldn't, uh, and you couldn't imagine his mind being distracted by anything, because he looked so completely content doing exactly what he was doing, which was just being in this beautiful forest. And so that quality of joy uh, was something that I always appreciated when he would speak about the Dharma and why, in fact, he was one of the most eloquent uh, orators because um, the simplicity and perfection of his words, you know, would just penetrate you when you listen to them. And he was a, a teacher who um, espoused the Buddhist view, the Buddha, his own view, that um, one could get enlightened just listening to the Dharma spoken. And in his presence, it really seemed quite possible and in fact easy, especially when he spoke about uh, Paticca Simupada, or dependent origination, which was a teaching that he was famous for, and um, one of the cornerstones of um, Theravada Buddhism. And he believed it was really the essence of Theravada Buddhism. 
and he wrote hundreds and hundreds of books in Thai, and um, and many of them were translated into English. But really, his teaching was extremely, extremely simple, and really, it came down to the fact of just telling people over and over to let go of selfishness. And so, hundreds of Thai people would come through this monastery, you know, on their bus stops and come in and in bus loads prostrate themselves to him and to each and every one of them he would say the same thing. Just let go of selfishness. Just let go of selfishness. And um, the kind of self, you know, the, the conventional sense of selfishness was one level, but he was speaking about something a, a little bit more subtle. And um, that's what uh, the teaching of Paticca Samapada was pointing to. So I'd just like to share <coughs> a short expression of that. <clears throat> what has been said so far should be enough for everyone to be able to understand the phrase, the birth of ego. Birth here does not mean the birth from a mother's womb, but the birth in the vastness of the mind. So please understand that the feeling, I am I, that arises is born in the mind, and birth is not the birth of the physical body. And that was the truth that he lived and taught over and over again, that simple reality. And so listening to him speak about Paticca Samuppada, which he did um, in his later years uh, when he had most energy, which turned out to be at five o'clock in the morning, and so he would get all the farangs, or foreigners, to come down to his cottage or kuti uh, in the forest at 5 a.m. And um, you'd kind of wake yourself up and run down the, the forest path, trying not to step on anything that was moving. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> arrive at his, in front of his kuti, and he would be sitting there as bright and alert as... Um, anyone could imagine. And, um, and you could see he just loved to, to teach these teachings of the Dharma, and he would sit there and laugh about um, all of the misunderstandings and misconceptions that people had about these teachings, and all of the systems that had been created, and all of the techniques that people were getting busy with, and, and he would just come back to the simple essence of letting go of this belief in I and realizing, realizing that the mind was essentially already free and liberated, which wasn't a teaching that was particularly well accepted in um, Theravada and Thai Buddhism. <clears throat> and listening to him, it was kind of like watching, you know, um, Michelangelo painting, you know, the roof of the Sistine Chapel upside down or something. His arms, the way he moved his arms was so eloquent, and uh, all of his gestures were so refined, and his voice really just, you know, echoed of this quality of contentment and joy. And that was really what his expression and his genius was about, even from the beginning of his life, when he, um, as a boy, barely 20, still a novice monk, um, and already a great speaker was asked to speak in, in three or four monasteries on festival days in his little town, because he just had this quality of clarity. And that same quality, you know, I, I read about the early days of Swan Mok, as Jack was talking about, um, manifested in his um, spiritual experiment, which was the early Swan Mok in which he would do these things uh, just to experience what it was like and just to discover what was the truth of each and every one of these experiences. And uh, I remember reading about how he, um, he had a tremendous natural capacity for meditation. And I remember how he um, was practicing a very profound level of concentration where you could, you know, uh, see visions, lights, and so forth. And he had um, a pond in the monastery with goldfish in it, and he really liked to look at these goldfish. So what he did was, he created an image in his mind of these goldfish made out of light, 
And he would just sit there when he was getting bored and amuse himself by watching these goldfish floating around. And that was the kind of joy and delight he took in the Dharma that one could always feel in his presence. And in the later part, the later part of his life in Swanmok with, with these big crowds coming, that, that same joy and quality seemed totally undisturbed and he seemed to take delight in tricking people into discovering that joy of Dharma. Uh, for, for example, he constructed uh, the um, spiritual theater, um, which really was a collection of all kinds of uh, artworks, many of which, all of which had the uh, Dharma as their focal point, and many of which were um, meant to kind of shock people out of their particular perspective. And like there was one in the, spirit, in the spiritual theater that uh, was a picture of a, lot, a group of p people of different heights and sizes um, and wrapped in a ribbon. And the caption said, um, a collection of people by flowers. <laughs> so that was the kind of mind Ajahn Buddha Dasa had. And uh, he made use of all of the facilities at Swampok to, to uh, kind of stop people in their tracks. And one of which was the um, back part of the monastery where they um, made all of these statues that uh, Jack was speaking about. And after a while, you know, the monastery got full of these beautiful uh, ancient uh, Indian Buddhist statues uh, and uh, reproductions that there really wasn't too many more that could be made. So they had to find something else to do with the molding in the back there. And um, so the old uh, wise Buddhist monk that, uh, that Jack was speaking about, who was busy sweeping the leaves, um, when these children would come, would um, ask them how many soda pops they'd been drinking in the last week. And um, they would say, oh, well, um, you know, maybe five or six. And then he would say, well, how much money did that cost you? And um, they would tell him, and he would say, well, listen, I'll give you one of these uh, new piggy banks, and every time you think of going to buy a soda pop, what I want you to do is to put the money into this piggy bank and go and have a drink of pure, clean Thai water. And so that was kind of a, a way in which he would trick the kids, and the parents would be standing there proudly. And then he would turn to the kids and say, oh, by the way, how much money does your parent, do your parents spend on tobacco? <laughs> and uh, how much money do they spend on alcohol? And so the parents, of course, would be totally embarrassed, which usually uh, Thai, Thailand is a culture where losing face is, is something one doesn't want to do. So they would immediately have to start relinquishing their cigarettes and tobacco and take their booze out of their car. And You know, when you go back there, sometimes you'd see this huge pile of stuff like everything that had been abandoned by people. <laughs> so he, he had many ways of, of turning people towards the Dharma. <clears throat> so one of the um, simplest and most profound expressions that uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasi used to, to uh, express uh, his teachings um, I'd like to share with you. Please think this over, contemplate it, observe it and ponder over it until you perceive that all, all things display the characteristics of emptiness. It's, it's just that we don't see it, so who's to blame but ourselves? It's like the old Zen riddle, or koan, as they call it, that an ancient pine tree proclaim is proclaiming the Dharma. That old pine tree is displaying emptiness, the emptiness that it shares with all things and all people. So, um, one day I, I, I um, came back to Swanmok and I went up to Ajahn Buddha Dasa and I said, uh, or Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa really, and I said, um, what does that mean, a pine tree proclaims the Dharma? He said to me, uh, that's a teaching that only old people can understand. <laughs> and so I think maybe he was right. 
Thank you. For those of you who are interested in hearing more of Andrew's uh, recollections of Ajahn Buddhadasa and his teachings, Andrew's actually giving a one-day event here at Spirit Rock in September. What's the date? September 19th on Ajahn Buddhadasa and his teachings. So you can get the full story at that time. Um, I was a monk, as Jack said, in Thailand and spent several months practicing at Wat Swan Mok um, in 1982. Uh, during a rains retreat, which is a three-month period where all monks, all Theravadan monks, are expected to take one residence and not leave for that period of time. So we were, as it was, confined or imprisoned once we made our commitment to stay there during that period. But in no way was it a, a confining or imprisoning of the heart. Um, as Jack has, has said, the, the quality of nature was really, for me, my central experience of Wat Swan Mok and the legacy, I think, of Ajahn Buddhadasa's teachings, even though he has, he has uh, physically left the scene. At that time, um, as a Western monk, you came in, you, you asked for permission to stay. As Andrew said, Ajahn Buddhadasa was mostly just sitting all day long at a stone bench up at the front. The Wat dogs, these mangy, barking, starving creatures were running around him and scaring off a few people. Um, the chickens would walk past and squawk and sometimes ju jump up on the bench and sit next to him. And as a new monk, you'd just go and you'd do your three bows and you'd ask his permission to stay. And that was about all there was to booking your room for the three-month <laughs> retreat at Wat Swan Mok. And once you were accepted, which was pretty much par for the course, you were given the keys to your kuti. You were led to your little hut in the forest. And these huts were extremely small and, and unpretentious. There's basically a, a six-foot by ten-foot room with a, a little balcony on front, built of wood. It may have screens or may not over the windows, set on concrete pilings to lift it above the, the mud and the ants and the snakes and the scorpions and so forth. <laughs> and you were shown to your kuti. You were introduced to a senior monk who would who you would follow on your alms round, because that was a central part of the monk's life there, was to get up about 5.30 in the morning, head off into the nearby villages, and walk across the, the dikes between the rice fields to these little houses that were set out in the rice fields themselves, just as the sun was coming up. The native people would come down and, and put scoops of rice and little bits of uh, curry or egg in your bowl, and you'd just walk on. That was about an hour and a half circuit in the morning. So you're introduced to the monk that you would follow to learn your, what was called the Bindabat route, and then you were pretty much left alone. That was pretty much it. Here's your kuti, here's the guy you follow for breakfast, see you at the end of the retreat. <laughs> and that was just a reflection of the, the kind of spaciousness that Ajahn Buddhadasa had about the Dharma and the kind of faith that he had in every individual's ability to come to their own understanding and wisdom. And for me, it was a very, very liberating experience to have my little hut in the forest, basically to be left alone in the middle of this gorgeous piece of nature for three months to just continue to follow my own practice. And there is a wonderful, there is a wonderful heart quality at Swan Mok that comes out of Ajahn Buddhadasa's depth of practice, his loving kindness, and the appreciation that he has for nature so that one does not feel in any way isolated or alone in that situation, but rather supported by the entire monastery and by the community of monks, just to carry on with one's practice. And one of his key messages in, in helping people understand what they should do for practice is, let nature be your teacher. And so we just learned from the monkeys that played in the tree limbs overhead we learned from the rains that came every day. We learned from the animals that died on the paths. and We learned from the animals that tried to eat us as well as one another. And it was just a, a wonderful heart quality of that time um, in my practice. And also I think that um, Ajahn Buddhadasa in many ways was exactly the right teacher Westerners. He himself had a very critical scientific mind, a very keen discriminating awareness and a great sense of, 
of wisdom. And that's what led him to reject many of what he saw as the falsehoods of an elaborate ritualistic practice that had crept into Thai Buddhism over the years. He rejected all that. And there are many stories that illustrate his rejection of that. One of my favorites was a, a rich layperson who came to the monastery and wanted to make an offering of a great deal of money to the monastery if Ajahn Buddhadasa would give him some numbers to use in the lottery the next week. <laughs> monks were assumed to have these psychic powers and to be able to predict these sorts of things. And Ajahn Buddhadasa, as you can imagine, was not interested in playing this game. And he simply told the man, you may as well go ask the dog at the gate. <laughs> go away. And yet in that discriminating awareness, he was uh, not at all loath to pick up the, the truths and expressions of truth from other traditions that express the Buddha's teaching. So in the spiritual theater, which Andrew mentioned, it's this huge room that's rather like a museum, except all the paintings are actually done on the concrete walls. You'll find replications of art from the Zen tradition, art from the Tibetan tradition, and original art, like the uh, people by flowers painting. But there, for instance, are the, the ten Zen ox herding pictures, uh, portrait of Buddha Dharma, very good copies of the originals, and a huge floor-to-ceiling version of the Tibetan uh, Tonka, the wheel of, of birth and death, illustrating the Paticca Samuppada, the, the chain of dependent origination, which was one of Ajahn Buddhadasa's key, key teachings, and about which he has written a thick book. We also had the, had the privilege to receive some individual teachings from him he didn't have anything set up in a formal way at that time to teach to Westerners. During that rains retreat, there were actually four Western monks and one Western nun who were practicing. So we requested some special teachings, and he agreed to give them uh, in the evenings once a week to us. So the five of us would go down and sit with him outside his cottage. It would be about uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And it, for me, it was a very magical kind of time and experience. The soft tropical night would have fallen, it would be dark outside. We'd be sitting outside in his garden under a trellis of vines, and the insects would as always be humming and chirping and whirring in the background. And he would just sit and talk in this very relaxed fashion about his understanding of the Dharma and where we should put our attention in practice. And then his humor, his, uh, his relaxedness, his, his love for the Dharma would just shine through. He had, uh, as Jack uh, in hinted, he was sort of a mountain of a man, very relaxed, still body, and he had these very warm eyes behind these thick lenses and uh, little crew-cut sort of white hair sprinkling around on top. And so he was unconventional in many ways, but when he taught the practice, he would go back to the original teachings of the suttas, and I'll just give you an example, the flavor of the kind of practice that he encouraged us to take up. This was near the end of the rains retreat, he said, I want you to investigate the ayatanika dhammas. And these are things that arise around the senses. In Buddhist thought, there are six senses, the five physical senses and the sense of the mind. Each of the senses, for each of the senses, he said, I want you to investigate five dhammas or things. Dhamma can just be used to mean things. I want you to investigate the sense organ, such as the eye or the ear, the sense object, which is the sight or the sound, the consciousness that arises, your contact with it, and the feeling. We thought, boy, that's a lot to keep track of. It's 30 things we're supposed to be investigating moment by moment. But that pretty much covers most of phenomenal experience, so it's probably a useful thing to investigate. And then he went on. Now, for each of these 30 dhammas, I want you to understand six qualities with each of these dhammas. I want you to understand its nature, its cause, its ceasing, what's attractive about it, what's dangerous about it, and the way to relate to it and to be free of it. And the talks didn't go much longer because I think he felt he'd given us enough to do for the rest of the retreat. And I, I think he had. So, uh, along with Jack and Andrew, I'd just really like to express my appreciation to Ajahn Buddhadasa, wherever he may be, for the beauty of his teachings, the beauty of Watswan Mok, and the legacy that he's left us. And I, I want to also express my gratitude to you all who are here and to this place at Spirit Rock um, to joining us in honoring one of our elders. And there's something very beautiful in honoring 
elders, really important. I learn that more as I get older, of course. <laughs> um, but it feels like that, the connection of generations, of, uh, of the gifts of those who uh, offered us uh, wisdom, understanding, compassion in each of our lives, the benefactors that we each have touched. So as a way of closing this, except for announcements in a minute to follow, the three of us would like to do a, a traditional short funeral chant um, whose meaning is all created things are impermanent, unsubstantial. They have the nature to arise, everything that's created, for a certain time and then pass away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.